If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 75 years ago, in the summer of 1947, British rule came to an end in India. And the country was divided into two separate independent countries, India and Pakistan. Partition was the culmination of negotiations between the British, the Indian National Congress, the Muslim League and other smaller parties. And it took place at a time of rising communal tensions and violence, which only increased as the division took place. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're looking back at these dramatic events with Dr Anne Wesher Roy who's departmental lecturer in Indian history at the University of Oxford. As always with the series, our questions include popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via our social media channels. Putting the questions to Anne Wesher was Rob Attar. First of all, could we begin with a popular online search question? Why did the partition of India take place? Well, that's actually a a very uh, difficult question to answer because it it seems simple. But um, uh, the the straightforward answer would be that um, it seemed the only logical solution out of uh, the communal nightmare that surrounded uh, negotiations uh, and uh, you know, uh, everyday processes of uh, uh, political gatherings, etc. Everything uh, that s- it became so communally charged that eventually all parties realized that the partition was the only way out of this nightmare. So there'd been there'd been agitations for Indian independence from the British Empire for for many decades. But at what point did people start thinking that partition, rather than just say an independent India, was going to be the solution? 
So yes, the word partition actually comes up for the first time in the cabinet mission plan of 1946, as late as 1946. So for the longest time, it was uh, independence with some sort of loose federal structure for Pakistan as it came up from 1940s. So it was not until like 1946, and even then, until like Mountbatten comes in in 1947 as the viceroy, that the concept of partition actually becomes a reality. So it's very, very late in the day that actually the, the, that partition becomes a reality, even, even in the political negotiations, and not just in the political thought, but even in final political negotiations between the Muslim League, the uh, British Empire, and uh, the uh, Congress, and even other uh, smaller political parties for the Sikhs and scheduled castes, etc., the partition actually becomes a reality. So who would you say were the main architects of partitions? Who were the people behind it? So there were three major players, uh, the uh, British, of course, and uh, the Congress, the Indian National Congress, and the Muslim League. And all uh, three of them at some point in time actually opposed partition and eventually in 1947 accepted partition as the only logical outcome. And we had a question by Laura Lanning on Facebook, and she said, why were the people that would be affected not allowed more involvement in partition. I suppose she means the ordinary Indian people. Why do they not have more to say? First of all, it's difficult to actually say you know that the people did not have a say in the in, in partition it's very difficult to actually have common people be involved in top level negotiations which are some of which are taking place in england some of which are taking place in uh, a vice regal lodge so it's it's very difficult to actually have common people come in and participate having said that that's not entirely true that common people did not participate there were plebiscites which were held in several parts of uh, the country. Whether those plebiscites were lived up to, that's a different matter. But there were plebiscites which were held to uh, for the people to decide whether they wanted to be part of India or uh, Pakistan. There were the Pathans, for instance, led by Khan Abdul uh, Ghaffar Khan, uh, wanted uh, neither India nor Pakistan. They wanted a separate Pathan state, and that was completely shot down by the Congress and the Muslim League. There were several princely states which wanted to be neither a part of India or Pakistan, there was uh, Bengal, which at one point in time wanted to be a separate country altogether. So there were so many pulls and pushes in different directions that eventually it was decided that it was these major political parties which would sit together with the British uh, and decide the fate of the two uh, countries as they would go forward. Because if, if you did start taking into consideration every different political opinion that existed, it would have dragged on for a further uh, uh, period. And, you know, it's, it's not a very simple, straightforward understanding that, oh, the Muslim League wanted a partition, wanted Pakistan, and hence partition, and the Congress wanted a united India. So it's not like that. What about the partition? What about Pakistan? What part should go here? What part should go there? Every different political player had a different opinion and a different understanding. And there, there were too, too many eggs in the basket. And that is why I think eventually it was decided that the, the common people would just have to take a backseat here. And it, it, it's, it's sad, but that's how it was decided, actually. And I suppose we should talk specifically about the year 1947. So why does, does it happen in 1947? Why does Britain decide to give India its independence in that year? 
it's the historiography of uh, decolonization and also power partition is very, very um, divided on uh, this. And, you know, sometimes there is, uh, uh, there are Indian nationalists who uh, love to thrive on the idea that um, Indians uh, snatched uh, uh, freedom uh, from England. And there are a lot of uh, um, Englishmen who love to believe that, um, that it was an act of positive statesmanship by uh, the English. But it eventually boils down to the question that you're asking, is it why in 1947? And I think that I would like to point out two very short points for this, because, uh, well, the long answer can actually take fairly long. The number one context in my mind is the international context, uh, the global politics, uh, the milieu of global politics in the aftermath of the Second World War. And why I say this is that in the aftermath of World War II, the balance of power had tilted decidedly in favor of the United States. Now, Britain had become heavily dependent on U.S. loans, and that hindered the financial capacity uh, to shoulder the responsibilities of a world power. And uh, moreover, you know, throughout the war, um, Roosevelt sustained a you know, a very prolonged interest in the Indian national movement. And that proved to be a constant pressure on Churchill himself. So after the war, worldwide anti-imperialist statements uh, made the empire morally indefensible. And in the context of internal politics, um, popular action, and by popular action, I mean there was a, there was a flurry of popular uh, anti-imperialist movements here and there, which threatened to completely destabilize uh, the British government. First of all, there was the INA, uh, the protests against the INA trials, which happened in November 1945. And then the most important of all was uh, the uh, revolt in the Royal Indian Navy, which happened in February 1946, uh, which actually threatened to completely cripple the uh, British Indian uh, Navy or the Royal Indian Navy. So popular action made continents of British rule completely untenable, like fear of popular excesses, both by the Congress and the Muslim League, um, uh, that, you know, that they were, that these popular movements were gaining so much ground that they would not be able to control them, made both the League leaders and the Congress leaders cling to the path of negotiations and compromise and eventually accept partition as a necessary price. And the limits of popular anti-imperialist movements made the truncated settlement of August 1947 possible. So there was the international context of the sec- in the aftermath of the Second World War and the context of uh, heightened anti-imperialist movements in the country, in, again, in the aftermath of uh, the war, which absolutely made 1947 possible. Okay, and another popular search question on this topic is, how was India divided? How were the borders between the two countries decided? To put it simply, it was a very botched up plan. You know, it was, uh, there was way too much happening, way too fast. There were too many plans. You know, it, it started uh, not, not in 1947. It started in 1944. There was the Raja Gupalipachari plan. Then the cabinet mission came in with its own plan of uh, groupings of provinces between A, B and C. And no plan could satisfy all the parties and compromises were hard to come by. Now, when Mountbatten comes in as the viceroy, as the last uh, uh, viceroy of India in 1947, he decided to scrap the cabinet mission uh, plan uh, uh, on 
which some sort of, uh, you know, and some semblance of consensus had been reached. And instead, he formulated what was very inappropriately codenamed Plan Balkan, which was abandoned as quickly as it came up. After further rounds of negotiations, it was finally decided between the Congress, between uh, the Muslim League and the British, that it w- that power would be transferred to two central governments, and uh, it would not be uh, one center with a federal structure, etc. And the two central governments would be India and Pakistan. Now, this became the basis of Indian Independence Act that was implemented on 15th August uh, 1947. But the practical side of actually implementing this plan was left to two commissions known as boundary commissions, both headed by a British lawyer uh, known as Ratcliffe, who had never been to India and knew nothing about Indian conditions or geography, and also for the reason why this plan was completely botched up. Boundary lines were drawn up at a terrific speed often ignoring local details. Sometimes, uh, you know, boundary lines went straight through an existing house. Uh, they, they went uh, straight through cattle sheds. And this meant that overnight, thousands and thousands of people found themselves suddenly on the quote-unquote wrong side of the border. So uh, it, it was done in such a fast pace that it was done in, uh, in the middle of a communal holocaust that... There was there was no cognizance of actual ground realities or what the geographical limitations are, what the economic limitations are. So it was it was a botched up plan. It was um, chaotic, but that's how it went. Now we'll come on to talk about the violence a bit later on in the discussion. But one thing that I just thought we should mention at this stage is that although India was divided into two countries in 1947, it's now three, isn't it? Because Pakistan has since split into Pakistan and Bangladesh. Yes. Okay, thank you. So uh, uh, one question we had in on Twitter from um, Miss M. Marcus was, were there ordinary Muslims against partition? And I suppose the assumption there is that Muslims were typically in favour of partition. And I also don't know, is that true? That's absolutely not true. The general idea that people often have the moment they hear uh, partition is that, oh, Pakistan naturally meant partition. And that's com- that's a myth. That's completely untrue. Uh, for the longest time, Jinnah actually opposed partition. And if, like I have said before, that it was accepted as a compromise. It was accepted as a final solution uh, or a way out of the communal madness that was happening. And this binary distinction that Hindus uh, wanted independence and Muslims wanted partitioning of the country is a very dangerous path to walk down on. And there were several odd Muslims who were against uh, uh, partition, and uh, there were several very prominent Muslims who were against uh, partition. And mo- I w- there's one particular organization that I would like to mention, which had a huge sway over Muslims during this uh, period, which was the largest organization of the ulemas, or the Muslim clerics uh, in India, which was known as uh, the Jamaati Ulemae Hind, which maintained that Muslims in India were obligated to save the country from domination of the British. Whom they saw as quote unquote infidels by every means of resistance available. And they believed that since they were incapable of fighting the British uh, in, in arms, they would have to launch a non violent agitation in the Congress style uh, against uh, the uh, British. And the Jamaati Ulema Hind was actually. Uh, 
staunchly against partition, was staunchly against uh, even the concept of Pakistan. And they propounded their own theory, which was uh, known as United Nationalism, which was a direct counter to the two-nation theory of uh, Muslim League. And the United Nationalism theory was presented as a counterbalance in the sense that theory actually said that Indian people were one nation despite religious differences. And the ulema constantly found justification for this theory in the you know long-term history of Muslim rule in India, where uh, they reiterated that the Muslims never found the need to politically divide Hindus and uh, Muslims. So there were ordinary Muslims against uh, partition. There were organizations of Muslims against partition. So this uh, this synonymous idea of partition and Pakistan is actually a myth and it's a very dangerous threat to pull on. Now we had an interesting question from Alex Plotkin on Facebook and Alex wrote, what happened to the Indian army after partition? Did soldiers divide into the new countries based on their religion? Pretty much. Uh, You know, the the end of the British rule obviously spelled the end of the existing Indian army and its administration. Field Marshal uh, Sir Auchinleck oversaw the division of this uh, force. Now, roughly uh, 260,000 men, mainly Hindus and Sikhs, uh, went to India. And another roughly 140,000 men, mainly Muslims, went to Pakistan. Uh, The Brigade of the Gurkhas, which was a very important component of the uh, British Indian army, which was recruited from Nepal, was um, split between India and Britain. Now, many British officers stayed on to assist this transition, which in a way, you know, considering the communal holocaust that was happening, actually the partition of the army was remarkably smooth in this context. General Sir Robert Lockhart was India's first chief of army staff, and General Sir Frank Meservi, uh, who became uh, Pakistan's uh, chief of army staff, actually oversaw this uh, division. Now, individual units were also split up, largely based on where religious pr- preferences lay. For instance, the 19th, 19th Lancers of Pakistan exchanged their Jat and Sikh troops for Muslims from Skinner's horses in India. So, yes, pretty much depending on um, uh, what religion one belonged to, that's how the partitioning of oral division of the army also happened. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And uh, a lot of people had the idea that partition was temporary, that they would come back. Uh, uh, You know, once this uh, chaos settles, they would come back for their possessions. So a lot of people left, hid things, buried things in the ground of their uh, houses and just left with whatever they could. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you referred a little bit earlier to the the violence that took place alongside partition. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of the scale of that violence. It is considered to be one of the worst episodes of communal violence in not just in India but also in the world. Not simply because of the 
sheer number of people who were killed, but also because of the nature of the violence, the, the, the gruesomeness. It's horrific, to say the least. The violence against women and children, the horrific episodes of sexual violence, it, it just makes your blood cold. And also, the transfer of population that happened between India and uh, Pakistan, and that continued for uh, several years after 1947. And you know, also what has to be remembered is that the partition violence did not begin with 1947. It actually started from 1946 when the cabinet mission plan came and refused to acknowledge Jinnah's idea of Pakistan as a legitimate reality. And uh, it started in Calcutta with the Great Calcutta Killing in August 1946. And pretty much the, uh, the ball started rolling from therein. And uh, the Great Calcutta ki Killing, according to official estimates, left nearly 5,000 people dead over a period of four days, merely four days. And this is just the official estimate, which did not take into account uh, numerous bodies that kept on being discovered after the uh, four days of uh, killing had ended. Then there were several parts of East Bengal, which again saw uh, bad communal riots. Then there was Bihar in November 1946. Uh, Bengal again, uh, and parts of Bombay again in uh, February and March 1947. And Punjab, which literally lit a fire from March 1947. Uh, so it's, and, and then of course you had the terrible violence from August 1947, uh, largely in Punjab. Bengal relatively uh, was less as compared to Punjab. The scale of violence, the scale of brutality, the scale of gruesomeness remained unprecedented in the history of the country and also, you know, the history of South Asia in general. So it, it was it was one of those episodes of, you know, historians do not like to call use the word madness, but people who saw it say that it was nothing short of it. And these were communities that had for centuries often lived side by side relatively peacefully. How can we explain how this violence erupted so quickly and with such devastating effect? This is a question which uh, is a why the scale of violence is something that uh, historians still haven't been able to answer, uh, largely because I think it's so difficult to come to terms with. In my opinion, I, I think the, the British did have something to do with it. And when the Royal Indian Navy revolt was uh, going on, uh, the British were willing to fly in, like, you know, extra battalions of uh, uh, army uh, from different parts of the country and even station troops for a long time in India in order to bring the violence under control. But when the communal holocaust actually broke out, the British were remarkably passive. Their response was tardy. For instance, I mentioned the Great Calcutta killing, which began on 16th August 1946. The army didn't move in, or even curfew wasn't declared until 24 hours later. And in the Enquiry Commission, which was instituted uh, straight after the Great Calcutta killing, you can, we can see remarkable tardiness. We can see remarkable passivity on behalf of the British in um, trying to tackle this problem. And, and they, they, they 
often they said that they did not have an idea about the scale of violence which was happening. Then again, when the Punjab violence uh, uh, broke out in March 1947, and, and this is just before the uh, partition, again, troops were not brought in immediately. Uh, and when they were brought in, they, they did not intervene in several uh, uh, parts. And neither the Congress nor the League, I believe, uh, in 1947, actually believed that this level of violence could happen. They were not prepared. Hence, they had not, you know, they, they, when it actually happened, they were completely caught unawares. There were no system was in place to uh, ha- uh, to host refugees. There was no system in place to um, provide uh, military aid. There was no system in place to provide uh, medical services. So it's, I think. What I'm trying to get at is it's very difficult to come to a singular narrative about why this level of violence happened. It took everyone by surprise. It took everyone by shock. And there are uh, several long-term studies which have shown that, particularly in the case of Bengal, for instance, there was a lot of brutalization of consciousness which happened as a result of the dead bodies that had piled up as a result of the famine of 1943 uh, to 45, which kind of made people used to seeing dead bodies. So there are a few uh, psychological studies that have been done. There are a few uh, long durape studies that have been done, which try to then uh, look at the long-term pattern of why uh, this kind of violence happened. But there is no singular answer, except the you know that the communal barometer had just kept rising over the uh, years, and not much had been done to check it, uh, because all political parties had their own vested interests in um, this. Now, in your last question, you referred to the fact there were also many millions of refugees that um, travelled between the two countries. How difficult was it for India and Pakistan to accommodate these millions of people who turned up, I suppose, without homes and perhaps without many possessions? It was very difficult. Like I said, they were not very well prepared. The initial refugee camps which came up were just people squatting Uh, on the other side of the border. Some people had foreseen the kind of, uh, you know, that there might be a transfer of population. So uh, they had started the trek earlier uh, as compared to August 1947. But most people started it overnight, left all their possession because of rioting and, uh, you know, they just didn't want to carry uh, stuff. And uh, a lot of people had the idea that partition was temporary, that they would come back. Uh, uh, You know, once this uh, chaos settles, they would come back for their possession. So a lot of people left, hid things, buried things in the ground of their uh, houses and just left with whatever they could. And the first settlements came up with people just going and squatting in what became refugee colonies, some remnants of which still exist in uh, uh, parts of Delhi, in parts of Gujarat, in parts of um, uh, Bengal, uh, where uh, transfer of population happened. Now, the two governments did step in fairly quickly. There were um, uh, there were departments which uh, were opened up to actually uh, look into housings of uh, for refugees. A lot, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of houses were um, 
left empty because people had just left and thought that they would come back. So those houses were then uh, t- uh, used to house refugees that uh, came in. But it was uh, it was it was a long term process, and the governments of both the countries had to take stock of uh, what are the homes that have been left empty, what are the houses that have been left empty that can be used to house a refugee. So there was chaos, but the two governments did step in to uh, make uh, it possible for refugees to start, uh, you know, getting back to a sense of normalcy. But, well, normalcy is a very loaded term in this uh, context. And often you would have several families packed into a singular uh, uh, house. There was only one kitchen and you had five, six uh, families cooking together. And uh, there was no water supply because uh, a, a proper department hadn't been set up to look into water supply for these uh, re- uh, colonies uh, of uh, refugees then there was no sanitation and it was it was a horrific uh, condition as in when these governments went up to look into these uh, matters things started coming in but yes neither india nor pakistan was prepared for this level of influx of refugees and cons- considering all the violence and difficulties with partition What kind of relationship did India and Pakistan have with each other at the start? Not cordial. It's never been cordial. It's, it's uh, as we know. I mean, uh, there were several India-Pakistan uh, wars which happened uh, as a result of unresolved border issues. The two countries did not necessarily see eye to eye over several matters, over exchange of populations, uh, over um, e- exchange of possessions. There was there was pretty much squabbling over what was to be divided, how it was to be uh, uh, divided. So it was not a, a good relation between the two countries in terms of how to manage refugees or anything for that matter. Um, we had a question on Instagram from Bulldozer. And they wanted to know whether partition could be considered Britain's worst exit from a former colony. Possibly, yes. You know, the Indian example was to serve as a model for subsequent such cases where, uh, you know, partition would probably be required. And ironically, the Indian model was supposed to be an example for Palestine, which happened in 1948. And the fact that uh, Palestine was an equal mess showed that The, the British didn't learn much from uh, the Indian example. I wouldn't like to put a comparative index for India and Palestine, but yes, it, it definitely was one of the worst exits of uh, England from a former colony. And then we had a question um, from Marina CRS 2018, who asks, how are the impacts of partition felt today? There's a very broad consensus amongst historians that Partition was not an event, it was a process. And that is why the impact of partition is a long-term thing. It's it's a process which has not ended even today. And uh, this is mostly evident in the form of continued border tensions, several full-scale India-Pakistan wars, all of which have some sort of connection with unresolved issues of partition. It's also evident in the form of continued communal divide between Hindus and Muslims uh, in India and Pakistan, although in the context of both India and Pakistan in this particular factor of communal divide has several other underlying reasons for it, for uh, which I will not get into. But yes, it's it's 
it's there's a long durée of uh, partition the effects are felt even today in terms of uh, international context border tensions as uh, well as uh, you know the the divisions between uh, communities that exist in india and pakistan today and we're we're obviously now very close to the 75th anniversary of partition how do you think that will be remembered in india pakistan and bangladesh it's i don't think remembering partition be it the 75th year or first year I, i don't think it's going to change it's it's still a bleeding wound and because both india and pakistan blame a lot of their present difficulties on the way the partition happened so it's a bleeding wound it's a festering wound and it's it's not likely to bring any closure even if it is the 75th it should now begin to heal the wound should now begin to heal but i don't think it's happening in the context of bangladesh the bangladeshis do consider partition to be another mistake which their political leaders did uh, because uh, they did not want the imposition of urdu in any uh, which way upon bengali muslims which then they fought against through the bhasha andolan and then eventually the um, Bangladeshi war of liberation which led to the creation of Bangladesh in 1971 so um how much is partition remembered in Bangladesh is a different is a very different kind of experience from how is partition remembered in India and uh, Pakistan that was dr amwesha roy You can read more on the 75th anniversary of partition in the September issue of BBC History magazine which goes on sale in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Collins.